Our scripture reading this morning from Matthew chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is God's word. Thank you, Rebecca, for reading. Let's pray once more as we get started. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that endures. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to us, for coming to Jerusalem and facing the cross. God, I pray that the words that I've prepared would be meaningful to your people here at Westgate, that by your spirit you would be provoking hearts and minds to think about you, to set you above all things, that you would use my words to do that. Only your spirit can change hearts, God, and so I'm asking that you do that this morning. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. From the moment we are born, there are practices in place that help identify people. When my sons were born, they had their tiny fingers printed, uh, as well as their feet. And all of it is documented to show that Steph and I are their parents. And then all the paperwork that we file uh, eventually comes back to us as a social security card and a birth certificate. Uh, both of which become important forms of identification they'll use for the rest of their lives. And beyond social security numbers and birth certificates, we also notice the presence and importance of identification uh, when we travel. Every time you fly, TSA will ask to see your license, right, or your passport. Whatever the case may be, there's all sorts of ways our world depends on identification to make sure we are who we say we are. And understanding the identity of someone is foundational to so much of what we do, foundational to relationships, employment, and more. You know, if you can't correctly identify someone, then all sorts of confusion can happen. With that said, just because you correctly identify someone doesn't mean that you necessarily know them. And this is the error that the crowd makes on that Palm Sunday. 
Although they had some form of identification for Jesus, namely the prophecy of Zechariah, they didn't really understand who he was or what he came to do. They had identified the right person, but they imposed on him the wrong expectations. And what Jesus experiences is something like what I think high-profile uh, actors experience. For example, pe- people may come up to Mark Hamill and call him Luke Skywalker, or to Tom Cruise and call him Maverick, or Robert Downey Jr. and call him Iron Man. You know, in each of those cases, excited moviegoers, in a sense, they've got the right person, but really the person they are meeting is not the same person that they see on screen. That person is a fiction. The crowd of Jerusalem is able to identify Jesus with the right name, recognizing his significance as a king, but the image and expectation they place on Jesus, the expectation that he comes as a prideful, conquering liberator, is a fiction. When the inhabitants of Jerusalem ask the crowd, who is this? They have an answer. He's a prophet from Nazareth. But it's an incomplete answer, a diminished answer. And today, Jesus continues to be misunderstood. And although Jesus is highly regarded and respected, he is not understood for who he himself demonstrated he is, which is a humble servant king. The crowd, of course, had valid reasons for expecting a liberating king. There was real desire to get out from under foreign authority, but they could not see But what they could not see is that the deliverance Jesus was coming to bring was of far greater significance. When Jesus aimed to do what he aimed to do when he entered Jerusalem was not to oust foreign power so that a group of people would gain control of an area roughly the same size as Maryland. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, he has deliverance in mind, but not for a region, but for the world. And my aim this morning is to answer that question once posed by the people of Jerusalem. Who is this Jesus? He's not just a teacher. He's not just a good person. He is the long-awaited, humble king, the son of God, the savior of the world. And we need him because although we do not live under the rule of foreign powers, we do live under the threat of fallen power, that fallen power being sin. Thankfully, Jesus is the promised messianic king. And knowing this, we should joyfully praise him because of who he really is, what he really came to do. You know, in Matthew, one of his main purposes in authoring his gospel, his gospel's count, is to show his readers that this Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one spoken of hundreds of years ago, which is to say, in authoring his gospel, Matthew is presenting Jesus' identification. When we stand before a TSA agent, we present our license. We present our license to identify ourselves. You know, Matthew writes to his audience, and he's not presenting a card or a license. He's presenting a whole book so that they don't miss this. And interestingly, what we see in Matthew all along is that some people get it and some people don't. In chapter 16, we get the clearest recognition of Jesus' identity from Peter. He asks him, who do you, Peter, say that I am? And he rightly replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But all of Jesus' disciples don't fully understand who he is or what he came to do. Right before our chapter in 21, in chapter 20, 
Matthew records a pair of stories that highlight how different people view Jesus. First, after foretelling his death a third time, the mother of a pair of Jesus' disciples, James and John, come up to Jesus and make a request. And this story always is a little amusing to me because parents, we do this today. We want the best for our kids, right? We don't always want our kids sitting on the bench. We want to see them in the game. We want to see the best for them. And so we go and we talk to the coach. Well, this mother goes to Jesus and tells her what she wants. Can you promise that when you are king over your kingdom, my son will sit, my son's one at your right hand, one at your left hand? But the error she makes is thinking that Jesus is going to set up an earthly physical kingdom. And when he does, she's hoping that Jesus will make them co-captains, that he'll place them at the top of the totem pole. But again, this error is made because they don't really grasp who he is and what he's come to do. This conversation is contrasted with the event right after it. As Jesus leaves Jericho and makes his way ever closer to Jerusalem, these blind men on the side of the road repeatedly cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. And although they can't see, they rightly identify Jesus as Lord, as the promised son of David. And the irony, of course, is that these blind men see Jesus for who he is, as opposed to his own disciples who do not. And all those examples are just a taste for how Matthew is presenting the identity of Jesus and how there have been mixed responses to him, which brings us to our passage, Matthew 21. And in these first five verses, Jesus is concerned with prophetic preparation. And the prophecy is directly quoted for us in verse 5. Those words are taken from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And we know that the preparation and quotation of Zechariah is important to Matthew because he inserts this phrase in verse 4, which reads, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And that phrase shows up ten other times in Matthew's gospel. One scholar refers to it as Matthew's fulfillment formula. At important stages in the gospel, you encounter this formula, which again is part of Matthew's toolkit to identify Jesus as the promised Messiah. And when you come across this phrase, it's as though Matthew is using a neon sign to say to his readers, look at this, look at this. Different prophets hundreds of years ago wrote about events and promises which are being fulfilled by Jesus. And so as we come to Matthew 21, this prophecy from Zechariah, as Matthew is identifying Jesus to us in these verses, There's something very specific he's pointing out to us with this prophecy. Just like my license will include descriptors beyond my name, like my height or my eye color, so too all of these prophecies that Matthew draws attention to are highlighting certain characteristics and qualities of the Messiah. Let's look at the prophecy, verse 5. I'll read it again. It says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Four things I want to point out to you quickly here. The first is we see who the prophecy is directed to. The original hearers of the prophecy is the daughter of Zion. And throughout the Bible, Zion is typically used as another name for Jerusalem. Therefore, it's fitting that as Jesus enters Jerusalem, his audience is the same audience of Zechariah, the people of Jerusalem. Second, Zechariah explicitly calls this figure a king. 
And the crowd recognizes this on some level because like the two blind men, he is described as the son of David. And the reason that's significant is because a long time ago, God made a promise to David that one of his offspring was to, be, was to establish a throne and kingdom which would last forever. And so when people refer to Jesus as the son of David, they were referring to Jesus as the fulfillment, the realization of that promise. However, as we'll see in a moment, although the blind men in the crowd refer to Jesus the same way, the crowd has very different motives when they call him the son of David. Third, as we consider the passage of prophecy and the person of Jesus, the characteristic that is highlighted is his humility. Again, if Matthew is presenting to us the identification of Jesus as the Messiah, then just like you have some essential traits listed on your ID, like your eye color and your height, so also Matthew is describing an essential trait of the Messiah. He is humble. He is humble. Which brings us to the final thing to mention about this prophecy. In order to make it clear that this messianic figure is humble, there is an extra detail given about his ride. This figure rides on a donkey, as the prophecy says, the foal of a beast of burden. And the donkey is a lowly animal. It was, the not, it was not the sort of animal you'd parade around in. Which is to say, when Jesus came into town, he came in a Camry, not a Cadillac. If Caesar, he would have rolled in with a Rolls Royce, but not Jesus. And so with those four things, you get a sense of the significance of the prophecy and why Jesus is devoting attention to it. Uh, before we move on to the other six verses, a word on prophecy. And when you look at verses 2 to 3, you see that Jesus is giving detailed instructions to his disciples in order to fulfill the prophecy. And there may be people out there who object to this and say, why should I believe in this Jesus if he's deliberately taking actions to fulfill what was written before? Couldn't anyone do that? Couldn't anyone just pick up a copy of Zechariah and think, all right, I guess I just need a donkey and to look really humble, and people will eat this up. And I'm somewhat sympathetic to those objections. If what Jesus was doing was just playing dress-up to dupe a bunch of gullible religious people, then I would oppose that also. No one wants to be conned by a con man. But to view Jesus in that light gets it all wrong. The way that we should read and interpret these prophecies should be determined by the context of the prophecies and the context of their New Testament use. And I know that statement on its own uh, doesn't answer the objection, so let me explain it to you this way. You know, the weight of a promise can be magnified by the circumstances in which they were given. And here's a couple examples for you. Think about parents who have nothing and who are heartbroken telling their kids that there won't be any gifts this year because there's no money for them. But they make a promise, a day will come when I will get you that present. Or think of refugees displaced from their homes who long year after year to get home to see family Check up on neighbors and check in on friends, but are restrained from returning home on account of the country's being in turmoil. But they make a promise, a day will come when I come back to you. Or to give a final example, think of kids who live in impoverished neighborhoods who see their parents working two, three jobs just to keep food on the table. And whether they tell their parents or not, they make the promise, a day will come when mom doesn't have to work anymore. You know, in each of those examples, 
What you have is someone making a promise in hard times. And how joyous it is when that parent delivers that gift. When that refugee returns home. When that kid provides for his mom. When the promise is realized, when the promise is kept, it's cause for celebration. Well, when Zechariah writes his prophecy, God's people are in hard times. And God has Zechariah pen this promise of this king to come who will bring relief from their enemies. It's as though Zechariah says, a day will come when a king arrives and you won't fear anymore. Jesus takes deliberate action to come in on a donkey to signal to everyone in his day, that the promise given in hard times is being fulfilled in their midst. And we're only looking at Zechariah's prophecy, but at every turn in Matthew's gospel, he is quoting the Old Testament. And if you read those promises, they stand out. The prophets were constantly saying, a day will come, a day will come, a day will come. Matthew and Jesus are doing all they can to say that the day has come. The day is here. So as we read the detailed actions Jesus takes to follow the prophecy, he's not doing so as a con man, but as the right man, the true man, the promised man. And it's important that Jesus fulfills scriptures. If we have any hope of answering the question, who is Jesus? We have to look at the scriptures. It's the scriptures that identify him, that describes him to us. Today, we only look closely at one of them, but the New Testament is full of prophetic references. You know, scholars estimate that they are give or take 300 of them. And many of those prophecies were given to God's people in hard times. And just as it mattered to the people of Jesus' day, so it matters for us. It matters that Jesus, that the Jesus we follow, that the Jesus who saves us, is the promised Messiah of the Scriptures. Why he matters brings us to our remaining verses, verses 6 to 11. In these final verses, we see the reaction to Jesus' fulfillment, and there's two groups of people, two reactions. We have the crowd that welcomes Jesus, and we have the confused inhabitants of the city. We're going to focus more on the first crowd, and to their credit, the crowd receives Jesus with praises, but their response is misguided. Excuse me. Here's why we can say that. Matthew quotes Zechariah 9.9. It's just one verse. But if you read the first eight verses of that chapter, uh, verse 9 acts as a sort of climax. In the first eight verses, Zechariah actually lists the lands and inhabitants of all of Israel's enemies, basically saying, God will judge all the nations and Israel will be the last man standing. And then verse 9 Verse 9 is taken to mean, you know, this person, this one to come, is going to be the means, the instrument by which God will judge those nations and those enemies. And if you read Zechariah, Rome finds no mention in that book. But the people who meet Jesus with praises understand the enduring significance of that prophecy for their day. Or so they think. And if you don't know the history of Jerusalem and the struggle they have had with occupying powers, let me give you a very, very, very short overview of what Jerusalem has been through. And hang in in there with me, okay? In the Old Testament, God's people constantly faced world powers and eventually were exiled because of them. You know, at one point, they were able to return to the land but still worry about the powers around. That describes Zechariah. 
And as we approach the New Testament, before Rome was the great superpower, it was Greece. And when the Greeks were the latest and greatest power around, something significant happened in Jerusalem. Something the Greeks were excellent at doing was spreading their culture. Wherever they conquered, and when, these Greek, when the Greek influence arrived in Jerusalem, it was not welcomed. A family called the Maccabees refused to acquiesce to Greek custom and instead fiercely opposed foreign power. And there was an event known as the Maccabean Revolt, and for a time these band of rebels were able to oust foreign power. The revolution was successful, but only for a time. Once Jesus arrives on the scene, Rome is in power and in control, but not without some drama. And although the revolt did not result in an enduring self-governance for Jews, the influence that the Maccabean revolt had on the Jewish people did not waver. It emboldened nationalist sentiments. So when Jesus rides into town, he comes to a people who are familiar with the prophecies of God's deliverance in the history of the Maccabean revolt. And in both instances, the knot that ties them together is this dissatisfaction of living under the constraints of foreign powers. So when they see Jesus, they are rejoicing because they interpret Jesus to be the one who comes to overthrow Rome. And their actions clue us into this, specifically how the people express their joy by setting down coats and branches. You know, in John's gospel, he specifies that the branches in use are palm branches, and that's why we call this Sunday Palm Sunday. But when the Jews of Jesus' day receive him with branches, it's not merely an act of joy. These palm branches were symbols of nationalist hopes. This is something that struck me when I heard Travis preach on this very passage from John. Uh, That was a few years ago. Quoting a New Testament scholar, Travis pointed out that when Jewish revolutionaries attempted to rise up against Rome, palm branches were used as a symbol of Jewish revolution. In fact, these Jewish independence movements would melt down Roman coins that had the emperor's face on them and mint new coins, which pictured palm branches. And in addition to this, in the non-biblical book of 1 Maccabees, you actually find a reference which details Jews praising and rejoicing with palm branches because the Maccabees are described as opposing enemies, crushing them, and driving them out of town. One scholar puts it plainly like this, the crowd's use of palm branches is an allusion to the Maccabean triumphs. Suffice it to say that the people of Jerusalem already had expectations in their minds for who this Jesus was and what he came to do. But to their surprise, what Jesus came to do was far greater than what they could have hoped for. And so I've said a lot about the scriptural context concerning prophecy and history, but I mentioned them not to just give you a history lesson or to dump some facts on you, but I wanted to consider the background because there's something analogous between the crowds that welcome Jesus and us. There is something we need to be on guard for, that if we are not careful, we can make the same error as the crowd did. Now, most of you in this room do believe. You believe Jesus to be the Savior of the world. But I'm sure there are some of you who do not yet believe. And I think our passage has something to say to each of you. I'll begin with my fellow believers here. You know, just last week, a New Testament scholar and author, Esau Macaulay, he published this great little article in anticipation of Palm Sunday. And I mention it because it really helped me make sense of how the Gospels portray Jesus' triumphal entry. For the Christian, we 
typically are not asking the question, who is Jesus? We have answers, and I'm confident that if I handed out note cards to everyone at Westgate, and I asked you guys to answer the question, who is Jesus, in a hundred words or less, you guys could probably give pretty great answers. And if you've read your Bible, you've been a Christian for a while, you can articulate some sort of answer to the question, who is Jesus? But, and here's why Dr. McCauley is so helpful to me, a problem for us Christians and a problem for the crowd is that we can be too certain of our answers. Or if I could put it this way, if you visualize that card, okay, 100 words, who, who is Jesus? You write it down. If you visualize that note card, our problem is not that we leave them blank, but that we would add what doesn't belong. And if you were here last weekend and you heard Doug say this, he said, God created us in his own image, and then we return the favor. That's what the crowd did with Jesus. They constructed and imposed on him their Maccabean-like image, one of a warrior and a liberator. And we too, if we are not careful, can construct an image of Jesus by our words and actions. As Christians, we're not the ones who are asking who is Jesus, but our neighbors are. Our coworkers are. Our families are. And they might not be coming up to you like the people of Jerusalem did and directly ask, who is Jesus? Can you tell me? Who is this Jesus? But the thought might cross their mind, and whether you think about it or not, you are giving them an answer by how you act, by what you post, by what you say. If I can get a little more specific, you are giving answers to the question, who is Jesus, by the ways that you link Jesus or hitch Jesus to something else. From your portrayals of Jesus, people will piece together an image of what he's like. You know, consider what we've been talking about this morning. Remember, Matthew spent much of his book making it clear that Jesus is the Messiah, giving his gospel account as a form of identification. And as you go about your day, what you say about Jesus, what you say Jesus would care about, can be a form can form a sort of identification for Jesus that others pick up on and read. And now, to, to be sure, we can debate, as Doug said, with holy conjecture on what Jesus would or would not participate in today, what he would or would not endorse in our time. And those are worthwhile debates. But my point for you, for those of you who believe, is to think twice about the Jesus you portray to others. As believers, we should make certain that the Jesus we are portraying to others is the Jesus of the Scriptures. Again, inspired by the words of Dr. McCauley, the danger for the Christian is that we take up our palm branches and raise our shouts in support of a Jesus we've created in our minds. Jesus becomes a rallying cry for our desires, our causes, our agendas. However, just as the people would be disappointed that this Jesus came not to overthrow Rome, but to suffer and die under Pontius Pilate, so too we are confronted by the Jesus of the Scriptures, the Christ of the cross, who came not to give rise to our agendas, but to get all of us to conform to his, to follow him, to worship him, to believe in him. So again, we should take stock of our speech and actions. How are we describing Jesus to others? Now, as I said, I want to speak to anyone here who might not yet believe. Uh, but truth be told, everyone should hear this. 
Christians don't get to snooze through this part. First thing I would say is, what I want to say to those who do not yet believe is not so different from what I've just said to those who do. Every good Christian aspires to live upright lives. No Christian is actively trying to present a distorted picture of Jesus. But even the best of us will miss the mark from time to time. So if you want to know Jesus, you want to know what he's like, then you need to read the scriptures for yourself. And you can take your pick, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You can consider how eyewitnesses spoke about him. Because even the best Christian who is faithfully portraying Jesus is simply portraying the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The best images of Jesus are not cooked up by the imaginations of Christians, but are derived from the authors of the New Testament. Moreover, I've only had half an hour or so to describe who Jesus is to you. But if you want to get to know someone, you know it takes more than 30 minutes. So if you want to know Jesus, then pick up the scriptures and read it for yourself. The second thing I want to say to you, and again, this is for everyone, is about sin. You know, earlier I said, all of us don't live under the threat of foreign power, but the threat of fallen power. And before I close, let me dish it to you a little differently. Think about yourself. Think about yourself and think about the hard things you have been through. Things that you've had no control over, but just happened to you. It could be illness, health issues that afflict you, might be difficult relationships, perhaps you've been wronged or hurt by others, maybe you've experienced an accident of some sort. I would attribute all those things to living in a broken world, a world that has been broken because of sin. Sin has corrupted our world in such a way that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And if you'll permit me, in light of our passage this morning, I think we can frame such things as the foreign powers of sin that afflict you. They're the things that are outside of us, outside of our control, that can afflict us and harm us. Sin does that. And we should want relief from those things. And I hope that you would agree with me that the things that these, what we experience, things are not the way it should be. But if we're going to take that seriously, if we're going to agree that the world is broken then we should also do some introspection because while there are foreign powers of sin out there that do harm to us, we must also consider there is domestic powers of sin, a homegrown problem in our hearts and minds. It's that domestic power of sin that makes us angry, proud, makes us feel like we're better than others, makes us comfortable lying and cheating. And I don't know what your besetting sin is, but we all have them. And just like before, we should want relief from them. And this is where I'll end this morning. The destination that Christ had in mind as he entered in Jerusalem could not be an earthly throne. Instead, as he told his disciples over and over again, the destination that Christ had in mind from the beginning was a cross. And he had the cross in mind because it is by the cross that Christ could deal with every sin. And although the crucifixion looked like defeat, although the crucifixion seemed like it was all over, again, as if Christ had been defeated, it wasn't Jesus who lost that day. 
As we'll consider next week, when Christ rose again, he confirmed that sin and death have no hold on him. And because he did that, now everyone who follows him doesn't have to live under the tyranny of our own hearts and minds. And for those of us who believe, Christ gives us a greater power in order to deny what is wrong. In other words, when Jesus rises from the grave, he gives us relief from sin. And much like before, Jesus has left us with a promise, a promise that we can cling to in hard times. The promise being that a day will come when the pain of living in a broken world, where all the affliction and suffering we experience will be no more. A day will come when Jesus returns and sets everything right. And when he comes, the celebration that occurs will be greater than anything we know. And between now and then, we believe, we follow, we worship Jesus. But unlike the crowd of his day, we recognize and worship Jesus in truth, knowing exactly who he is and what he came to do. So who is this Jesus? He is the promised messianic king who came to save the world. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for this chapter in Matthew, and for this prophecy that you fulfilled. You are the king who came to us, who came humble, who came mounted on a donkey, just as you said. And you came not to overthrow one kingdom, but to overthrow all sin, so that there could be relief from sin and the power that it holds. Thank you, Jesus, for enduring the cross on our behalf. We pray this in your name. Amen.